Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Hey, this is Ben Masters, and you're listening to the Impact Outdoors podcast. Thought I had a couple weeks floating down the down the river to think about what to do next and decided to take the plunge and to create you know texas's first wildlife movie and we spent about a year in pre-production and about two years in cinematography and then we released it this past june and it uh, has done really well I'm, I'm 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 proud as hell of it and you know we had a phenomenal team that put it together and it's had a real impact on on texas wildlife and that's that's what our goal was and you know it's outperformed and been outwatched by all of our projections and i think it really really is a testament to how how many texans really care about about texas wildlife it's it's been really encouraging to me hey everybody welcome back to this week's episode impact outdoors podcast and man i'm excited for our guest this week we are joined by ben masters um texas filmmaker and uh you know recently just released deep in the heart here this past year and um really excited to have been on the show to kind of talk about the filmmaking process behind this documentary and uh you know it's just such a cool thing to see him um, and his team be able to highlight all these species that call Texas its home and and uh, so we did a deep dive into some of the some of the scenes within the documentary and kind of how this thing whole thing came together and uh, you know what's gonna um, be coming out in the future and coming out of this so um, great show um, talk about a lot of other topics as well including mountain lions and and hunting and fishing and, and everything in between so let's uh, let's go ahead and jump right into this week's show with Ben Masters. I'm super excited, you know, about this show. Um, so glad to have my buddy Ben Masters on the podcast today. And uh, um, you know, if you if you live in Texas, especially this year, you've probably heard of Ben. And um, with Deep in the Heart coming out this year, and all the all the great things it's been um, with that documentary and stuff, and uh, awesome film. My kids love it. Um, but uh, Ben, thanks for taking the time to be on today. Man, thanks for taking the time to invite me and, and having me. I uh, love Texas and, and, you know, got a lot to talk about. We met a couple months back at the yep. BHA. So, yeah, yep. it's great great to connect here. Heck yeah, man. And uh, you're an Aggie, right? Went to A&M? I'm 11. <laughs> Well, I went to Oklahoma State, so uh, we, we always love playing you guys in football when y'all were in the Big 12. But uh, yeah, um, try not to use any big words. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's all good, man. Um, but, uh, you know, just love uh, everything you've been doing to promote the state's wildlife and stuff. You know, um, um, you know, my, my job is all about that conservation and fisheries and wildlife and stuff. And so it's really cool getting to see it highlighted in such a way and format that you guys are doing with your with your projects and stuff, but, um, um, kind of jump right into, to deep in the heart, you know, kind of where did that seed start in your mind to, to do this project? And I know there's a million stories about all the different parts of the film, you know, but, um, just kind of touch on some key parts of that and, and, you know, really got the ball going for that. I think growing up, 
watching all the National Geographic and Discovery Channel and BBC and uh, Planet Earth type of series. I, I just loved that stuff as a kid. Just loved it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I grew up in a kind of a ranching family, hunted fish, you know, rode horses, did looking back on a, a just a wonderful childhood of mm-hmm. spending time outside and really kind of fell in love with, with the natural world and fascinated by kind of land management and uh, went to Texas A&M University, studied wildlife biology there, got done with that. And then we did a film called Unbranded uh, shortly afterwards. That was about wild horse adoptions where myself and a handful of other Aggies, we did a big uh, horseback ride on some wild horses from Mexico up to Canada. Yeah. And then that kind of really opened my eyes to what a film can do. Uh, in regards to allowing people to see and experience these different places that aren't their home and to care Mm -hmm. about things that they may not even know about. And after unbranded, we got like 500 horses adopted, you know, really um, started a lot of conversations about the wild horse issue in the American West. And that kind of inspired me to get more involved into actual into the into the filmmaking aspect of a, of a film, not being a character in it, and uh, started making a bunch of short films here in Texas. Yeah. Uh, did a I've done probably about twenty or so on anything from mountain lions to desert sheep reintroductions to pronghorn. Done a done a lot of work on on water in the hill country. Um, and some stuff down, you know, on the bays and, and estuaries as well. And doing all these short films and just kind of seeing the state and all the different ecosystems and all the different wildlife. I've always kind of dreamed of doing a big uh, natural history film or the, the genre that they call it of a narrated film with just wildlife behavior is a blue chip natural history film. I've yeah. always kind of dreamed of doing that, I guess, I guess the the initial seed for Deep in the Heart happened in 2014, whenever a fellow cinematographer named Skip Hobby and I, we were up filming the bison at Caprock, just in this white out blizzard. It was gross. And we were just, you know, hanging out around the oven at night, trying to get our fingers unfrozen. And we were talking about how like Texas has never had its own bespoke wildlife movie before which is a shame because like mm-hmm. our, our our wildlife here is so diverse and it, you know some of the most incredible spectacles on earth and how these stories of like the the, the history of buffalo they're you know they're so rich with not only the the animals history but also the people history surrounding them and uh in 2018 we finished a documentary on uh the rio grande called the river and the wall and I thought I had a couple of weeks floating down the down the river to think about what to do next and decided to take the plunge and to create, you know, Texas's first wildlife movie. And we yeah. spent about a year in pre-production and about two years in cinematography. And then we released it this past June and it uh, has done really well. I'm I'm, I'm I'm proud as hell of it. And, you know, we had a phenomenal team that put it together and it's had a real impact on, on Texas wildlife. And that's, that's what our goal was. And, you know, it's outperformed and been outwatched by all of our projections. And I think it really really is a testament to how, how many Texans really care about, about Texas wildlife. It's, it's been really encouraging to me. Yeah, it was really cool when it came out. I don't remember where I first seen the the first trailer for it, but um, I was just like, man, we gotta go see this as soon as it comes out, you know. And I mean, there was groups that, that I'm that I'm part of, and I mean, they're you know putting watch parties together and and taking off of work and going and seeing it and stuff. And uh, it was it was it was a cool experience, you know, and um, seeing all the publicity it got, and you just don't see that, you know, in conservation a lot, you know, and. Uh, what were the steps and like um for y'all as far as like releasing it in the in the big theaters and stuff i mean is that a i don't even know what kind of process that is involved with but is that a hard thing to do or i mean was it (laughs) yeah knowing how it was gonna do it's it's hard it's extremely risky and also it's expensive to give it like a 
legitimate chance. So the way theaters work is they, in order to show in mainstream theaters, one, you have to have a theatrical booker that actually believes in the, in the film's content and that people will actually come out and watch it. And they coordinate with all these theaters and pitch the theater, you know, the AMC or the Regal or whatever, and say like, Hey, this is, this is a good movie. People are going to come and watch it. And it's going to be able to compete with, you know, top gun and, um, the, Batman number 17 and Superman number 12 and like, you know, these big marvels, like it's hard to compete with that kind of stuff, especially with something that doesn't already have a built-in fan base. So he managed to pitch, you know, deep in the heart to these different theater chains and they took it. And uh, opening week, we had about 70 theaters show it. And we projected that deep in the heart would have around 12 to 15,000 people come and watch it in theaters and that it would probably run for like two weeks, maybe three. And we were completely overwhelmed by the response. I mean, we had some theaters where deep in the heart was like grossing as much as top gun over, over the weekend. I mean, just like blew all expectations out of the water. And instead of like 12,000 people that we anticipated seeing it, we had over 50,000 people watch it on the big screen. And um, we had some theaters run for like two and a half months. So it was it was extremely successful. And it, it really showed that there's this uh, really big demand for that type of like local wildlife content. Like people ate it up. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, we put it in theaters for 45 days and uh, it worked out. It worked out. I mean, we, it was a it was a risky investment to put all that money into like advertising and publicity and stuff. But from a <clears throat> impact and educational perspective, you know, I think for me that theatrical experience is so important because I kind of equate it to church in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when else in your life do you, do you sit down for an hour and you turn off your phone and you don't talk to the person next to you and you pay attention and you contemplate and you um, think about the information that's presented to you and you have narration and you have storytelling and you have music and that's so hard to be able to catch capture somebody's attention for for 90 minutes and then to be able to have this film that just like transports somebody out of their life and takes them into the ocelot brush or you know into the playa lakes for all the sand hills uh, is such a different experience in a theater than it is on your iphone or on an imac so yeah. um I, i'm a i'm a big fan of theaters and i think for the people that came in and, and watched it on the big screen they had a, a very profound experience yeah it was it was uh it was really cool to see it and i'll never forget um the sequence with the the bats coming out and then the snakes i think we talked about it <laughs> my boy stood up in the middle of the theater and was just like those snakes are rude when they started eating the bats <laughs> Everybody started laughing and, and uh, you know, things like that. You know, my boy was five at the time. And I mean, he was just enthralled with, with everything he was seeing on the screen and, you know, and, and uh, still talks about, talks about the film, you know, and um, they're wanting to, we haven't got to watch the newest, the Ocelot one, you know, that just came out on PBS, but we're going to try to get that this weekend. So. Um, oh man, that makes me happy to hear. That, that's my favorite thing is like, I know what's going to happen in the film, but. I like to watch the audience and especially like during the bat scene, especially just seeing, you know, people just curl up in terror as that snake enters into the scene and, you know, it starts like sniping all these bats off the cactus. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was cool, man. And just, Uh, man, the footage that you guys obtain with all these different segments of this thing, man, it's just incredible. You know, what was, out of all the ones y'all shot for the for Deep in the Heart, like what was I know we've talked about the gar and how lucky you guys were to capture that like the first few mm-hmm. minutes that y'all were there, but um, you know, what was the logistically the hardest one to get from the film? 
I mean, all of them had their own challenges. Each of the sequences had their own challenges. Uh, I think for me, well, the hardest one was probably the mountain lion. I mean, that took 14 months to film. Mm-hmm. And I think we used every single clip that we got wow. in the wild. Like we had no no extra footage that did not get used into that sequence. Yeah. So that one was really tough. The ocelot too. I mean, that was a full twelve months of of camera trapping to get that you know nine minute nine minute scene, and yeah. it was it was totally worth it. I mean, the the ocelot sequence is unbelievable. I still am in shock at the amount of behavior that we got and the kittens and stuff. Um, but each one of them had had their challenges. I mean, they're. Um, I think the biggest challenge, honestly, with the film was was in the edit. I mean, the cinematography is a ton of fun. I mean, going out and playing in the woods and filming wildlife, sign me up. I'll do that all year. But <laughs> trying to get all that footage and make a cohesive story of not only the whole film, but also like these little segments and the different yeah. sequences and have time together with all the transitions was a really fun challenge. Yeah. Yeah, and I imagine lots and lots and lots of hours in the studio working on all that stuff. Lots so, of hours in the studio and a really good team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that, you got a, you got a lot of people behind you doing all this. So yeah, there are there are, and I think that's something that that I personally love about you know the the filmmaking process is it's it's different than photography and it's different than uh, you know writing is that you know it it requires a massive team of people and you kind of have this vision of what it's going to be like. And then, you know, you kind of share it with the cinematographer and they kind of adapt it to their vision and then you give it to the sound designer and they adapt it to their vision and you kind of get to see this whole thing come together. That's a combination of everybody's talents and skill sets. That's, um, you know, it's always different than, than how you originally envision it in its own kind of special little way. It's Mm an extremely rewarding process if everything goes right. (laughs) So so how, how did y'all hook up with Matthew McConaughey and get him involved with this project? So we got Matthew on board about halfway into it. Uh, We had enough footage that we were able to cut together uh, like a 20 minute show reel that had some of the scenes in it as a example of what the Mm -hmm. the feature length film would be like. And I, I looked up, or actually I knew somebody who knew his agent emailed his agent and asked if Matthew would, would be interested. And he responded back like, yeah, send us over your, your work sample, send it over to him. And then it was two days later, he emailed me back was like, Matthew loves it. Can you get on the phone call and, and talk through the terms? I was like, Oh, <laughs> terms. Uh, yeah, I haven't thought about that yet. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, he was wonderful to work with and, and did a did a great job on on the delivery. And I can't think of a more appropriate voice for, you know, to, to have in a film like this. It was great. Yeah, that was cool, man. Having a familiar voice kind of guide you through the film and stuff. And, you know, he's just got such a, a, a good, I mean, he's a great actor. Man, his yeah. voice is just really good when you're just listening to him and watching all this. I mean, it really helped you get right into the middle of it and stuff. So Yeah, and getting getting to see him deliver those lines too. Like I understand now why he's in such a demand actor. I mean, he just the way words just flow out of him and he can just deliver um these lines beautifully and eloquently. It was it was it was really cool to see. Yeah. That's cool, man. That's pretty awesome. So, well, I know um, we'll we'll touch on some of the other parts of that film later, but um, I, I watched Unbranded recently, and um, that was that was an unbelievable trip that you guys took, you know, and and uh, there were so many cool characters, you know, your buddies from school, and then Val that's in there, and then and how did y'all? If you haven't watched it, you need to go watch it. Um, I know on y'all's website you can you can get to it from there. But um, um, such a cool character it seemed like he was such an integral part of y'all's journey. You know, going across the country. Um, where had y'all run into him at? Did you know him before? Or yeah, so when we did Unbranded, that was in 2013, and 
that was a trip that I did with three of my buddies. Uh, and it was, we adopted about a dozen horses from Bureau of Land Management and then rode them across the American West from Mexico to Canada. Um, it took about five and a half months, but that was the second time that I did it. The first time I did it was in 2010, uh, dropped out of college for a bit and trained horses and rode the Continental Divide Trail. And we were going up the Continental Divide Trail. My buddy Mike Pinkney and uh, Parker Flannery, and we got to this spot called Hawk's Rest, which is on the south end of Yellowstone. Mm. And uh, there was this old cabin up there, this old Forest Service volunteer cabin. And we're passing by it kind of close to dusk. And this crazy cowboy comes popping out of the door with this cup of coffee and gals. You boys want some coffee? <laughs> and you know, you just can't can't say no to that. It was like out of a, some made up movie. So we kicked our horses out on the pasture and or just hobbled them up and let them go in this little meadow and went in there and uh made friends with my horsemanship mentor who who had become one of my horsemanship mentors and, and one of the biggest influences in my life. Uh, a friendship that lasted you know for 10 years he passed early earlier this year yeah that's 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 such awesome awesome deal and man you just uh, it's, it's like somebody everybody wants to know and, and be around just the short amount he was in the film and stuff and uh it was just real cool. i really enjoyed the parts he was in so that was that was really cool seeing that real special so yeah covid got him right? yeah crush the old cowboy covid got him of all yeah. things man so did he um i mean oh he sang in the show you know and, and stuff is i mean that was especially in the when the credits were rolling when i was listening i was like man like this guy could have a full career just in in uh singing yeah you know? no doubt no doubt well i mean he was a singer for most of his life and that's crazy that's awesome well that's cool so you know, the, the premise of unbranded, you know, with the horse, talk a little bit about that and, and, um, kind of the stuff going on with the BLM and, 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 and the adoption process and, and all the, the things that were associated with that y'all are trying to, to convey in that. Yeah. So, you know, unbranded is a feature length documentary that was shot in 2013 and released in 2015. And it's about myself and these three other friends. We adopted these wild horses, uh, trained them with, with some help, some horse trainers, and then rode them from Mexico to Canada. And the film was about like the goal of the film was to try to inspire some wild horse adoptions and to, um, kind of showcase this complex issue, which is wild horse management in the American mm-hmm. West. And while the film definitely dives into that, the director of the film, Philip Baraboo, saw so much more potential. And he really made it this like coming of age story about, you know, four people in their early 20s kind of going on this grand adventure and at the yeah. time i didn't really have the maturity to to look at that as like this trip of a lifetime or this coming of age story but i look back on it now and that's that's definitely what it was and i think that it struck a be- like like it struck a chord with a lot of people because you know everybody especially now like i'm i'm 34 and i have two kids and i can't take off 5 months to go ride horses and like right. accomplish that 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 dream and yeah. I think for those of us who are fortunate enough to to do that in your early 20s, to do like this big sabbatical or this big journey that like truly tests you physically, mentally, it, you kind of look back on that throughout your life with such a like joy that, that you did that. And you like, you, you took a few months for yourself. And I think that that really struck a nerve with people for those who both did that journey in their life and and took that five month trip, whether that's a hiking trip or a kayaking trip or like a, you know, journey through Europe, looking at museums or whatever it is that, that yeah. it is, that is like your thing. I think that it, that it struck a nerve to, for both the people that, that did it and those who wish that they had, but did not And now like, life captures you up and it just gets really hard to take five yeah. months off and go ride horses across the American West. Yeah. And, uh, 
it also, you know, shines a light on this super complex issue of it's actually as complex as you want to make it. It's quite simple is that there are overpopulated wild horse herds in the American West. And there's often, you know, three to seven times the amount of horses in these particular areas as there should be. And there's, you know, pretty severe ecological degradation, particularly in riparian habitat zones. And um, it's a really frustrating situation because, you know, it's not just the horses that suffer from, you know, an overgrazed landscape. It's also, you know, the, the pronghorn and the sage grouse and, um, you know, the, the cutthroat trout that live in the streams and, mm. you know, everything up and down the food chain that, you know, isn't evolved to live in a landscape that has a, a an animal like the horse in it. And cause you know, they were an introduced animal with the European colonization. So <clears throat> it's a, it's a tough issue because they're also so beautiful, you know, like you see a herd of horses running across the desert in Nevada and you like feel the power of those hooves and you see those tails and those manes flowing and like it stirs something that is inside of your heart that is undeniably real and you want that to exist and it's hard to accept that the only way to like really reduce those numbers is to have some form of you know lethal management whether that's putting down the old ones or um and like, you know, donating to like a, like a cat and dog food shelter, uh, or, you know, the ideal solution for, from, from my perspective, and the one that we tried to promote in the film unbranded is adopt them out. Like whenever there's too many horses, they round them up and they offer up these animals for adoption and they can be awesome, awesome horses. I've got five of them right now. You know, we did that whole unbranded journey. I got a two and a half year old daughter. She goes out and rides her Mustang Tough uh, once a week. It's a great horse. So, you know, for the folks that are listening that are thinking about getting a horse and are in a position where they can, uh, you know, consider getting a Mustang. They're, I, I don't ever have to go to the vet. Um, I don't shoe them unless I'm going into the mountains. They're just super easy keepers. And once you kind of get past that hump in the training process where they stop looking at you like you're a mountain lion and just realize, you know, you're the dude that also brings the hay, yeah. then it's like training any other horse. Wow. That's incredible. So are most of the people <clears throat> that, that are adopting these horses, are they, you know, are they, are they doing them like one or two at a time or are people adopting bigger groups that have a lot of land that, that can work with them? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming these, you know, these things are being adopted to, to, <clears throat> to be an active horse, you know, with them, you know, riding and stuff, not just releasing them somewhere else. Yeah, it's it's complicated. I mean, the reality is, is that adoption is not going to be a problem or a solution to the degree of the problem, right. although I would love for it to be. But, you know, right now there's about 90,000 horses on BLM lands and Forest Service lands in the American le- in, in the American West on public lands. And the, the, the target population size, which they call the appropriate management level, mm-hmm. is 27,000. So there's, you know, nearly four times, there's three to four times the amount of horses on the range that there's supposed to be. And we're talking about having to remove like 65,000 horses to get it back to that target number. That is such a massive undertaking. So right now on a good year, there's like 3,000 horses that are being adopted. And in the wild, there can be like 10 to 12,000 bulls that are being born every year. So it would be great to think that we could adopt our way out of this situation, but that's that's not really realistic. So what the federal government does is they go out and they capture these horses, then they end up leasing out big pastures, primarily in the American West, gelding them and just releasing them and then, you know, eating the bill like taxpayers eat the bill for, yeah. you know, 25 years of a horse eating eating hay and not having a job or just living on a pasture and a lifestyle that's not wild or in my opinion really respectful to that animal 
Yeah. Uh, I think it's one of the the biggest failed programs in in our government. It's a it's a disgrace to the horse. It's a disgrace to the land. It's a disgrace to the taxpayer to our budgets. It's just a really, really um, horribly run government program. Yeah, yeah, and you and I both know um, how people look at things from outside that don't hunt or you know don't understand conservation and and the you know, the, the strategy behind all that and stuff. And, you know, he's like, you know, we live here in Texas, you know, I mean, look at the problems with the wild hogs, you know, I mean, we've got, we've got things going in place that, but people don't see a wild pig as something that needs to be, you know, protected, I guess, or something just to as much as extent as a wild horse or, you know, other things, you know, um, and, I don't know. I don't see very many people at all advocating on behalf of feral hogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, most people like they don't, they don't, they may not want you to shoot them until they come in their neighborhood and start tearing up their flower beds and then, yeah. then they want them trapped and gone. But, you know, I know they're doing a lot with, um, you know, trying to slow down the reproductive rate of these animals with, with different techniques and stuff i mean is that something going on with the horses as well out in the wild or yeah yeah they're i mean they're trying to to use some you know non-lethal alternatives to slow the population growth of the horses and in some cases it is effective it's just not it hasn't been proven effective at a large scale yeah yet but hopefully one day they will but yeah it's i mean it's it's really frustrating i mean you know it's like well-intentioned groups that um, um, like truly love the horses, but maybe don't have a good holistic viewpoint of like rangeland management or ecosystem health or soil health. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a ton of uh, litigation against the Bureau of Land Management. Anytime they try to do something like permanent sterilization for mares, which, you know, would stop a, a mare from foaling. So, you know, unfortunately, especially on our federal lands, a lot of the management decisions aren't made with best available science. They're made with, with lawsuits and, and with politics. And that's just an unfortunate reality of, of, of wild horses in particular, but other species as well. Yeah. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Yep. So we'll, let's, um, you want to talk about mountain lions? Yeah, man. Yeah. So that was a big, a big part of the deep in the heart film and stuff. And, and there's been a lot of, a lot of, um, stuff that you've been working on after the, the film and stuff. And, um, kind of tell us what the situation is here right now, especially here in Texas. Cause I mean, that's a, it's a hot topic. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm all for, um, you know, you, you can't ever have something be sustainable with the free for all, just do whatever kind of thing. And I'm really, you know, I'm really, you know, interested in seeing where this goes here in the future, um, as far as like management strategies for mountain lions in the state of Texas and, and stuff. So kind of, kind of give us a rundown on that. Yeah. So mountain lions, definitely one of my favorite topics. Um, you know, if we went back in time 300 years ago, you would have found mountain lions across the United States, you know, from really pretty much the Arctic Circle on the north side, all the way down to the to the Arctic Circle, you know, or the Antarctic Circle down in, in South America. So they stretch all the way from Canada, all the way down to, to Argentina, not quite to the like the 30th parallel, but like they, they go pretty far north. They're all through the tropics. They're incredibly adaptable. They are the most widespread cat species on Earth, on, on, on Earth. So, um, you know, totally awesome 
200 years ago, they would have been found all across Texas. You know, they would have been in a Caprock escarpment. They would have been on all, all East Texas, South Texas, up and down our river bottoms, West Texas, up in the mountains. And then, you know, during the 1900s, especially in the early 1900s, really across the United States, there was extensive trapping. There was extensive uh, poisoning, uh, primarily to get rid of, of wolves, but and, and, and coyotes, there was a concerted effort to try to get rid of coyotes in the 30s. Then there was, you know, tons of poison bait. There was a ton of traps, just really aggressive predator control that happened. And then mountain lions were were affected by all of that. And their numbers really crashed and, and burned. And it wasn't until the 1970s, whenever there was a period of time in the United States where people really kind of began to to value, uh, especially non-game wildlife more and, and, you know, ecosystems at large that, um, there was, you know, a period of, of really bold conservation that, that happened and mountain lions in most States during that period of time in the 1970s became a, a game animal. So like in Nevada or Colorado or New Mexico, wherever these last mountain lion populations were remained, they became a game animal, kind of like a deer or an elk. Mm-hmm. And similar to deer and elk, you know, if they're a game animal, there's value behind them. There's hunters that that are going to advocate on their behalf. And those numbers spread. They, they gained ground. And they're doing fairly well across the Western United States. They've really rebounded over the last 40 or so years. And uh, Texas, for reasons that I'm still not entirely sure of during that 1970s period whenever all the other states made them a game animal for whatever reasons we we did not make them a game animal Mm -hmm. they stayed like a non-game animal where they pretty much have um very similar regulatory status as as a non-game animal as like i don't know a rabbit or they don't even have as much protection as a fur-bearing animal so in the 1990s, there was another effort to make mountain lions a game animal, and that was not successful, uh, kind of became a political hot potato. And there was also this recognition that there wasn't a lot of science behind, you know, where the mountain lions were, what the mortality was, and there was this gap in understanding and a lot of questions that were being posed, like, you know, if we still have mountain lions here and we don't have regulations, is there a problem? And why do we need regulations if there's not a problem? Mm-hmm. Which is a very, very valid question to ask. And um, they decided to do a couple like big landmark studies in both West Texas and in South Texas. So in South Texas in the 90s, there was this big like 25 cat study. In West Texas, there was a big 25 cat study in um uh, uh, Big Bend Ranch State Park. There was another one up in the Davis Mountains, and they accumulated all of this data. And the data has, you know, pretty concerning um, results, uh, particularly, you know, the ones in Big Bend Ranch State Park, which is our our largest state park. All of those cats in that park, you know, traveled outside of the park lines. Yeah, and they were all captured in in leg hold traps, uh, with the exception of one, and that that single individual was shot, and then. There was another study up in Davis Mountains, uh, again, like 24 cats. All of the mortality was 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 leg hold traps. There was nearly a 50% annual mortality. So like by the time a cat was collared, there was about a 50% chance that, you know, one year from that point in time, it was going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, exclusively from leg hold traps. So, you know, South Texas as well, very, um, very high mortality. And I think, I think it's, it's kind of this weird thing because like as a hunter, whenever I uh, go deer hunting in a county, like let's take uh, Wheeler County where I like to go deer hunting, you know, I can, whenever I was a kid, it was one buck and one doe per year. And then now because the deer population has increased, it's, it's two bucks and, and three does. And there is this assumption as a hunter that like the state government is assessing the wildlife and taking care of our wildlife and ensuring that, you know, each species is, is, 
has a management plan for its existence into the future. So I don't really blame anybody that that kills mountain lions right now because I mean they're they're like why not? There's an assumption that if there's not a problem, then you know why why not? And I think that's one of the frustrating things for me is there is not a management plan for mountain lions in the state. And there is so much that is unknown about mountain lions in this state. And right now, you know, they can be killed 24 seven, 365 by any means, uh, as many as you want to, no harvest limits, no bag limits, no harvest reporting, no data collection at all whatsoever. And we have no idea if there's 50 cats being harvested a year, or if there's 500 cats being harvested a year. And it's kind of like a kind of a slap in the face to like wildlife management across North America, honestly, is, is kind of how I see it. And just how stupid would we feel if here in 15 years, the South Texas population of mountain lions blinked out and became non-existent. Yeah. And that is something that can definitely happen, especially because if you look at the population growth of Texas and you just see our population going from 30 million people to 50 million people, I personally want my 50 acres out in the woods somewhere. I'm not going to be able to afford a 10,000 acre ranch, but I can maybe afford 30 or 100 one day. So we're just seeing these landscapes get chopped up and disintegrated, especially in South Texas. So this idea that because we've always had mountain lions in the state, therefore we will always have mountain lions in the future, I think is really flawed thinking. And I do believe that in Texas, if we value this animal, the mountain lion, which we most certainly do, I mean, it is undeniable that we value this creature. I mean, you take a look at the mascots, four out of our top 10 mascots in the state, the wildcats, the lions, the panthers, the cougars, like this is a integral animal to our mm-hmm. yeah. identity as, as, as Texans to not have a management plan for our most magnificent badass cat, I think is incredibly irresponsible. So, you know, with deep in the heart, whenever we told our mountain lion sequence, we told the realities of what these cats face, the mortality that they, that they have uh, with trapping and acknowledge the fact that we don't have a management plan at all. And that, you know, Texas can, like other states, make them a game animal and, you know, ensure that they have an existence into the future. We tied that, or I say we tied that kind of concurrently with that film, there was this um, other organization called the Coalition for Texas Mountain Lions that was being formed that has some other people that are now close friends. And um, they asked me to, to sit as a part of that group, which I did. And we asked Texas Parks and Wildlife to make some some changes and put together a, a mountain lion management plan uh which we did and you know we put together a little like petition where people can sign their support saying hey yeah we want to have mountain lions mm-hmm. let's put together a management plan that's that's realistic that isn't overly burdensome on um landowners that still you know acknowledges that like mountain lions kill sheep like they're not you know they eat meat uh but at the same time like we have to manage looking forward with all the problems that we have and man the, the response has been amazing we've had like twenty five thousand emails get generated off that um it, it caught the attention of texas parks and wildlife department of texas parks and wildlife commissioners and there's just a lot of just energy and acknowledgement that like this is something that needs to be addressed because it's not going to become easier in texas to be a wild animal with a lot of the habitat fragmentation that that's occurring and the population growth, it's, it's something that we can't just take for granted that it's, you know, existence is going to continue into the future, especially for an animal like the mountain lion, where they require such large acreage to make it, make a living. Like even in West Texas, where the ranches are still big, you know, most of those cats are still going on nine, 10, 12 properties. Um, and if you have one of those properties that's super aggressive at, at trapping, you know, they're trapping everybody else's cats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's their litter size on average? Do you know? Two to four. Yeah. Two to four. Yeah. So I mean, mountain lion. Right there, you know, it's 
they're not reproducing in high numbers, you know, and, and fast enough. And so, and, I mean, it, it, it should be noted too. Like there's some people that claim that there's more mountain lions now than there has been in a in hundred years. And uh, I think it's, you know, foolish to discount those claims. And I hope that they're right, but it, that, that claim isn't, you know, really supported with a lot of the data. And that's, that's kind of, you know, we, whenever we went to Texas Parks and Wildlife as a coalition asking Texas Parks and Wildlife to, to take this seriously, you know, the very first thing we asked for was like, let's, let's do some harvest reporting. Because if we find out that there's 400 cats a year being harvested and there's a five-year trend of that, that is a very strong indication that like there is, they're doing just fine. And, you know, we don't need to get involved. But if it's 400 and then 250 and then 100 and then 25 and then nobody, they're not picking up on trail cameras at all, then like, hey, red flag, like we, we got a problem here. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, and, you know, like like any predator, mountain lion management is, is controversial and, and, and polarizing. But I do think Texas Parks and Wildlife Department is doing a good job. Uh, they're putting together like a 20 person stakeholder advisory group that has, you know, folks from the livestock industry and from tourism and sheep and goats and a lot of different folks that actually live on the landscape with these lions to try to figure out a way, like, how can we, how can we do this yeah. in a Texan way that, you know, really honors private property rights and, and still recognizes that we do need to, to conserve this cat. Yeah. 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 Cause, uh, you know, Private landowners own pretty much the entire state. So, I mean, we're, what, 90, 95% private here in Texas. Very little public land. But um, the public land we got is really good stuff. And, and um, but uh, that's, uh, that's one thing, you know, everybody that I've talked to, I've had on the show before and stuff, are always talking about, you know, the North American conservation model and all this. And then it's like, oh, well, we're in Texas. It's just totally totally different than everywhere else, you know, just because of all the stuff we've got here and, and, you know, the way some of the management's done and stuff and, and uh, pros and cons, man. Yeah. Pros and cons. Yep. Yep. So <laughs> I know, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma originally and uh, you know, we didn't have um, all these exotic animals running around all over the place while you were out hunting and stuff and moved down here and start seeing, looking like you're uh, in the Lion King movie and some of these ranches and right. seeing the axis <laughs> and stuff. And, and now I've got my deer lease over near uh, Fredericksburg and Mason area. And I'm just like, we still haven't got access on our property. They're close, but I'm like, I'm just waiting for them to show up, you know, cause <laughs> um, we all know, you know, one, how fun they are to hunt and, and, and what a fun good meat they are. Um, but man, they're so cool to watch. So totally different than whitetail. So but um have you got to do any hunting this year yet yeah man i i sure did my dad and i celebrated our 30th anniversary of deer hunting together nice uh he took me out on my first deer hunt when i was four years old so this year we cashed in all of our preference points in colorado we drew a third third rifle season kind of by grand junction yeah i got to go hunt on these beautiful sage flats and we got to see you know, 100, 150 deer a year. It was cold and brisk and the bucks were out chasing the does. It was, it was the perfect hunt. And, uh, my dad and I both got a deer on our, on our 30th anniversary. So it was, it was a special year for us, man. It was was really cool. That's really cool, man. Congrats on that. Yeah. So we've been, we've been trying and, and, uh, um, my daughter finally got her first deer this year and thanksgiving week. right there yeah man it was so cool because we end up both shooting a buck the same hunt and um you know her first one ended up being a buck and and uh she was just tickled pink man she was so excited she'll be she turns nine in february but we've been trying for a couple of years getting a turkey or a deer or something you know and a lot, no pressure just trying to go out and see if we can make it happen we've come close several times it just wasn't the right situation you know and and I was like, I think this is it. You know, it's going to be cool. It's going to be special because you're going to get it at, at uh, my wife's family farm up there in Missouri. And and then it happened, man. It was just everything was meant to be, you know. And it was crazy because we were sitting in the blind for like an hour and we had a, a doe out in front of us. And she would just not do what we were hoping she would do. And she eventually walked off and... I was like, man, surely she's got a buck, you know, following her somewhere. 30 minutes go by, nothing comes out. And then all of a sudden I look up and I, I see a buck standing out there at the edge of the trees. And 
And uh, so we got all ready and stuff. And and uh, I'll never forget the next five minutes, you know, just watching the progression of my daughter getting so excited and not knowing how to calm herself down. And, and uh, I was like, just take a deep breath. And then 10 minutes later, we were celebrating. So wow. it was That's so cool, cool, man. I, I got so, a two-year-old, so I'll, I'll be following in those footsteps. Man, too. oh, yeah. yeah it's been, I've been uh, waiting on that for a long time to happen. So now my boy's ready to, to try to get one. So, But they're they're both really good in the outdoors and, and stuff and very, very safe. And even though they don't listen a lot when, normally when you're running around, you know, because the kids are kids. But, man, when it comes to, to being outdoors, they both really have good attention spans and that's really cool to see, you know, being able to, to listen and try to understand what you're doing. And, and, um, so I was happy. It was the right time for my daughter this year. So that's cool. That's yeah. cool for you. You're so, good dad. Yeah. She's ready to eat some of that meat too, when we get it back from the <laughs> processor. So, but, uh, well, cool, man. Well, what about, um, uh, I know you're a big fly fisherman. So, uh, do you ever get down here on the coast much and, and get to fish or, Mostly yeah, trout fishing up, up north. I mean, it, it it's one of the best things about being in Texas and traveling around to film all over the place is we tend to hang out for a day or two and, yeah. you know, go fish in different rivers or kayak or whatever. But whenever we film deep in the heart, we had a couple great days of red fishing, you know, in October. And mm-hmm. uh, we actually, all those really awesome underwater shots that you see in the film, those are fish that we caught on the fly and then our, we like unhooked them and then let them swim in front of the camera. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's awesome. <laughs> be like, like, all right guys, we got to go to work today. We got to make sure we can't miss any fish, you know? <laughs> Shoot, that's cool, man. So that was, that was, that was some really cool footage. And then the, the gar footage y'all got, you know, the, that was incredible. That yeah. That was, that. that was a special so, moment. Yeah. That was really cool. And I know, I know mentioned it earlier, but I mean, y'all got called and, uh, y'all got all that footage, like what, 20, 30 minutes and then lost all your batteries or something. (laughs) What happened to that? Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I mean, we got called, uh, from Matt Cardwell, I believe is his last name up in, uh, off the Trinity river. And he was like, Hey guys, you got to come up right now. The conditions for these scar spawning is perfect today. Like I bet it's happening. So we drive up there real fast and get to this spot and we look in the water and there they are. There's this big gar ball and uh, we could tell they responded. I mean, there's, you know, huge seven foot fish slapping around, tails going everywhere. So threw the drone up in the air and uh, filmed the full flight of batteries, uh, brought it back down and took my camera that i had uh you know just in a lap and then jay my buddy uh got behind me on the canoe and we went paddled after him in the canoe and i had about 30 minutes worth of light left and 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 filmed them all from the canoe mm-hmm. and then the next day we got up and went out there and they were gone they're they're gone like that was the moment that was the gar yeah. spawn so we had you know, max hour and a half to shoot that. And we were able to piece together just enough critical shots to like, you know, show that full uh, scene of the guards, you know, entering into the shallows Mm -hmm. and balling up like that. And the female attracting, you know, six or seven males and just really, really neat behavior that I think shows kind of the, a side of a fish that people kind of associate with being kind of like creepy or crawly or kind of evil. And and instead it's just like this beautiful journey that they went on and their desire to have, you know, offspring that is able to, to, to survive and kind of pass on their lineage. So it was, it was a cool, cool moment to, to get to witness that the, the gar spawn and it didn't happen last year. There wasn't enough rain. So it's Mm -hmm. not, far from a guaranteed event yeah yeah and gar like man there's so uh there's so much we don't know about them and the alligator gar just so such a cool fish you know um you know i had encounters with them up in oklahoma growing up and stuff and you know in college and stuff and we were doing fisheries research and things like that but when we moved down here i never realized how many live down in the coast like in the southern yeah, base like in the ocean it I is mean, insane like there are alligator gar everywhere 
yeah big ones you know and so i know there's a I lot mean, they're of... the apex predator of the estuary man i mean yeah. they really are it's not sharks yeah yeah it's gar and then bull sharks and this and uh but you know there's i don't really see that many bull sharks though in, 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 in galveston we've got bull sharks everywhere oh so, really yeah yeah it's... are they big are they easy to film there's there's uh you'll see them sometimes especially up in like trinity bay where the river dumps in and stuff uh-huh. you know, there's lots of high numbers of, of bull How's sharks the turbidity there, there? Is there any, it can is there be pretty any... turbid so there's certain times mm-hmm. when it's clear but it's galveston bay so i mean we've got a lot of sedimentation and stuff and and uh not as sandy as a bay bottom is down south you know where you get your clear water but there's do times you see where... do you see them finning the the bull sharks? every once in a while yeah you know you will okay. So and can you see him from the air with the drone? Um, I'm sure you probably could. How so big are they? We, you know, at work, we capture bull sharks up to five feet in the bay. Okay. So, so, I mean, so good size. Yeah, but I mean, it's, we get pups all the way up to, you know, mature adults, but. Um, and do they leave the Gulf and then swim up into the estuary in order yeah, they're to usually the, the, their pups? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what they do. So, and then, um. Cause it's a huge breeding ground for, or, you know, for pupping ground for the, for the bull sharks specifically, just cause all the fresh water inflows we got down here and stuff. And, um, here in Sabine Lake, you know, and, um, uh, but Do we've done, pups, uh, does a, does a shark, and I, I apologize for my ignorance, but I <laughs> don't know a lot about shark reproduction. Does the male shark impregnate the female shark and then she gives live birth a couple of weeks later or a couple of months later, that's, that's shark reproduction, correct? Pretty much. Yeah. They, they, um, their gestation periods, um, vary species to species. Um, but typically, you know, it's, that's, what's going to happen. And they'll come up and, and, and have the pups in the bay and then, you know, or near, near coast, near coastal areas. And cause I mean, in summertime you'll, you'll, you'll be catching pups. Like we're just born, you know, especially like oh. out at the jetties and stuff, you'll be catching these little bitty baby sharks, you know, that just popped out. And, uh, um, so it's a, it's a really good, um, very productive estuary here in the Galveston Bay complex and stuff. And is uh, that because of the prey availability is why they, they have the pups. Definitely there, one of the it, main reasons because like, is there like a need for that brackish water? Or that the bull sharks water? definitely prefer the brackish water. I guess the... I guess it also prevents other like pelagic animals from predating upon their babies too to yeah. get them into that that fresh mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a. I never realized how many sharks were in in the bay down here. Um, but you know, working down here for like twenty years now, it's it's a, it's pretty incredible. You know, and in the species diversity. I mean, we've got. All the sharks most people know around here, black tips, spinners, bonnet heads, um, the bull sharks, you know, but we get a lot of on the near shore side um, on some of the tagging stuff we're doing at work in the, in the main part of the year, you know, we're seeing great and scalped hammerheads, you know, tiger sharks up here, black nose sharks, duskies, um, just a lot of variety, you know, and, and um do you ever run across the breaching Makos up there by Galveston? No, they're too, they stay too far out. So, yeah, oh, okay. the, you have to get down close, further south to get in where they'd be a little bit closer to shore just because it's so shallow up here. So I okay. tell everybody, like, kind of where Galveston's at, we're kind of the armpit of the Gulf. So everything predominantly blows up in this corner. So it's all silted in up here. And then you go down to about a third of the way down Texas and the continental shelf start coming in to so get deeper water a little mm-hmm. bit quicker and mm-hmm. stuff. And, and stuff but uh this year was uh you know when we go through these drought phases and stuff we seem like we get a lot more diversity from offshore coming into the bay systems you know we had a big push of triple tail in the bay here this year and hmm. lots of mahi mahi in close and in just, the bay not in the bay but very close to the bay i mean like right like offshore people catching mahi off jetties yeah honestly. close enough yeah wow. and, uh, we had a good push of tarpon again this year and and stuff and um so it's it's interesting, you know, because it's different every year, you know, depending on what happens. Yeah, you know, and, what uh, a dynamic system. And uh, that's why I always tell everybody that lives up north, you know, it's like, man, what you guys do up in Dallas and all that, you know, you got to think it all. You know how these rivers run, they all run down to the coast, and he, a lot of people just don't understand that. And uh, so a lot of stuff up that happens up north, you know, can affect it down here, especially, you know, natural elements like rain and all the flooding and stuff. So we – it rains for a week in Dallas and then we got 
flooding waters coming in from the Trinity River, you know, for weeks down here. So, um, but uh, yeah, we'll have to get you down and, and uh, go try to see some of this stuff sometime. So, man, I'd love to. I mean, I, I ain't scared of a good time, bud. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Come down, do some fishing and try to get some, some filming done or something. But uh, yeah, I'd um, love to. I know. Um, what are the plans for the future? I mean, I know maybe a possibility of making like a follow-up or something to deepen the heart. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What are y'all, yeah, I mean, what are y'all kind of working started. on? We're just getting started. We got two feature films in development right now or getting shot right now. Yeah. We got six short films. Like we're, we'll, we're full bore. Um, I mean, there's so many stories in Texas that are just waiting to be told. And, yeah. um, you know, there's obviously a demand for this type of content. And if we can figure out a way to make a living and a lifestyle out of filming really cool stuff in the woods, I mean, it'd be foolish not to. So we're just going full steam ahead. And um, yeah, we've got some exciting, exciting projects in the, in the works and nice. we'll definitely be doing some stuff on some Texas rivers. So let's, yeah, let's seriously cool. talk about some of those storylines down, down on the coast. Yeah, that would be cool, man. So, well, um, you know, uh, appreciate you being on and it's really cool to, to finally get to meet you this summer and stuff and get you on the podcast here. And, and, um, um, I don't know, uh, I guess biggest thing is just looking back at your life so far, you know, what has, what has, what do you see when you were growing up? Did you imagine that you would be doing this? 30 something years later, you know, as, as an adult now with a family and, and making the kind of impact you're making now with, with the work that you and your team are doing. I mean, it's gotta be pretty humbling. I mean, and, and getting do all and meet all these cool people with that are in this field. It is man. To be honest, I get imposter syndrome really bad because I didn't make the best grades, you know, in and out of trouble all growing up. And, uh, I have to pinch myself often to just like shake myself out of it and make, make sure I, this is real life. And, and to, to recognize that there's a lot of people that have put their trust in me, uh, both from a conservation standpoint and from a work standpoint, you know, I've got a team of like eight of the, some of the most talented and brilliant filmmakers in the world that, that work for me right now. Also, just the there's like a there's a there's there's a lot of like I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world to get to do what I do, but I also feel this tremendous responsibility to do it as well as we possibly can because if we take a look at you know our ocelots, like for us to fail in not being able to tell a, an honest and true story of what's going on with those ocelots then that's going to be a huge missed opportunity for that species and that animal you know there's like a hundred of them maybe less and like we have a huge hurricane that comes through and just wipes that that population out like you know that that would be catastrophic so this this field is very full of of sadness because oh, there's a lot of times where you go and you film something and it's the first time it's ever been filmed professionally. And you look back on it and you're like, I don't know if this landscape is going to be pavement here in five years, or yeah. I don't know if this bend in the Rio Grande is going to have a 30 foot wall that's, you know, ripped through that hillside. Uh, you know, rather than this vibrant ecosystem. And, you know, we've filmed a lot of loss. We've filmed a lot of hope. And, you know, I think that's my greatest goal with with the work that we do is to kind of show people something that that they've never seen before. And, and, you know, if they have that familiarity, then hopefully that care will come and that value will come. And, um, you know, it can lead to some, some good with, with these different animals and, it's a it's a wonderful life, man. I I have to say I'm the luckiest person in the world, and I also have to say that the reason why our films are good was because we have a great team. Yeah, and that's something I will never take for granted. And I've if I can take credit for one thing, it's it's having the 
the ability to uh, surround myself with just just really talented filmmakers that you know I've got I've they've got my back and uh, you know not everybody in this business can say that that's something I'll, I'll always be you know super grateful for and you know we're we're working on some on some really good stuff right now and uh, hopefully you'll have me back on here in a few years to talk talk more about oh I know. I know yeah. you, you you posted a couple of clips of some like some elk and some other stuff earlier this 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 fall and I was just like oh man I can't wait to see this stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, we got we got it coming. So awesome deal, man. Shoot, well, uh, Ben, appreciate you being on the show today. So thanks uh, thanks again for coming on. All right, my friend, you take care. All Don't right, take man. life too serious now. All right, man. So all right, we'll see you later. See you later. All right, well, thanks for listening to this week's episode. And uh, really want to say thanks again to Ben for joining us on this episode and uh, you know, reliving some of these stories and, and stuff that they worked so hard over the past several years to capture on film. And, and um, so if you haven't seen Deep in Heart, make sure you go catch it. And uh, it's available Amazon and a bunch of different other places you can stream it. So uh, make sure and check it out and go give them a shout on uh, their social media pages and, and keep up with what they've got coming out here in the future. And if you haven't yet, um, make sure you like and subscribe our podcast. Um, you know, you can find us just about anywhere you can get a podcast. So we really appreciate all the likes and comments and uh, really want you to hit that subscribe button and that really helps us get the podcast out to more people so um, thank you guys for listening really appreciate it and can't wait to bring you the next episode here at impact outdoors